Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, Interactive Investors Collectives Editor. Later on in this podcast, I'll be chatting to Keith Ashworth-Lord, Manager of the CFP SDL UK Buffettology Fund. Keith will be running through recent portfolio activity, his views on the current negative investor sentiment towards UK equities, and the proposed launch of the Buffettology Smaller Companies Investment Trust. As usual, our podcast is rounded off by Theodore Diloff, who will be talking about Fundsmith Equity, one of Interactive Investors' Super 60 funds. But to begin the podcast, I'm joined by Tom Bailey, ETF's editor at Interactive Investor, to chat through a couple of news pieces that will be of interest to investors that invest in funds or investment trusts. Tom, one of our freelancers recently took a look at how funds have performed since the end of March, which, with the benefits of hindsight, marked the end of the COVID-19 stock market sell-off, at least uh, so far to date. There were some interesting investment themes among the top 20 performing funds from the 23rd of March to the 7th of October. Could you uh, run through the highlights? Yeah, sure. So as you might have expected, gold funds were quite prominent on the list. Um, Gold prices hit a record high this year. The kind of backdrop to this being low bond yields, investors seeking safe haven assets, and less notably some concern among some investors that monetary and fiscal policy poses an inflation risk. So top of the list was MFM Junior Gold with a return of over 150%. Merion Gold and Silver was also on the list with a return of over 90%. That's obviously more than the price of gold has actually gone up. So it's because these funds by and large invest in gold mining companies and so will benefit from the share price increase of these companies as a, as the price of gold rises. So you get a, a higher exposure to the, the upside, at least in this instance, um, than if it was just purely a, a gold price tracking ETF. Also among the winners were several funds focused on kind of growth, growth stocks, including particularly US tech and healthcare. So in second and third place was Bailey Gifford, American and Morgan Stanley US growth, with each returning over 100% between March and October. There, there were also several other Bailey Gifford funds in the top 20, owing to the fact that the asset managers funds generally have a, a growth or a tech bias. Perhaps more surprisingly, some smaller company funds were among the best performers. So one of the uh, funds included on the list was Allianz US Microcap Equity. Now, the reason for this fund being on the list is that it invests heavily in small cap tech and biotech. And so it's benefited, benefited from that, uh, even when small cap more broadly has lagged. Some interesting um, themes and trends picked out there, Tom, by um, by that performance period. Overall, though, I think, you know, looking forward, it seems to me that most investment commentators seem to be adopting a glass half full attitude. You know, there's still a lot of fears that there'll be some sort of second notable stock market correction at some point as COVID-19 cases worldwide continue to rise. The upcoming US election is another potential risk on the horizon. Tom, you've covered a number of articles regarding the investment implications and ramifications of either outcome, which would be, you know, either a second term for President Donald Trump or a victory for Joe Biden. When you've been speaking to full managers, from an investment point of view, is there a particular outcome that is considered to be more favourable? I think first it's worth noting, so while all the eyes are focused on the presidential election itself, and that is very important, who's president, on, on also on election day, 3rd November, several Senate seats uh, are up for grabs too. And this this is vital. So 
the Senate is the US upper legislative house. So whoever wins and takes control of the Senate matters in terms of which policy can be passed. So if, as polls indicate, Biden wins the presidency, that matters. But if the Senate stays under Republican control, as it is right now, it will likely mean Biden will struggle to pass several of his proposed policies, specifically his uh, fiscal plans. So one view is that this will be good because there's concern over Biden's plan to raise taxes, particularly corporation tax, and that's obviously not great for markets and the long-term earning prospects of, of U.S. equities. But if the Republicans control the Senate, Biden's attempt to raise taxes may be blocked or, or at least tempered. So kind of, you know, there might come some sort of agreement on a smaller increase than Biden is initially kind of proposing right now. So there's this idea that with Biden in the White House, Republicans controlling Congress or, or the Senate more, more specifically, um, that will balance kind of they'll balance each other out with both sides having to compromise the best of both worlds in this view but not everyone agrees with this assessment so for some this would just create kind of legislative gridlock and turn biden into a lame duck president and stop him passing kind of actually needed legislation most notably uh, fiscal stimulus more government spending so many republicans in the senate are ideologically opposed to any more fiscal stimulus being kind of worried about the growth of the u.s federal government's debt and deficit and so we'll likely shoot down any major big boost in stimulus or agree to pass only a limited plan. So that's potentially not good for the US economy and by extension, US equities. So with this in mind, some investors and fund managers instead seem to be hoping for a kind of a full sweep in which the Democrats win both the presidency in the form of Joe Biden and the Senate at the same time. So that would, in theory, result in the Democrats being able then to pass a multi-trillion dollar spending bill, as they're talking about now, which markets would kind of very much welcome right now. This also appears to increasingly be seen as the most likely outcomes. So recent market performance in the US has been not bad, despite the fiscal talks stalling uh, between the Trump administration and, 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 and Congress right now. So markets may already be pricing in this, this outcome. But it's also worth noting, however, that if the Democrats do, if they can pass a huge stimulus bill, they can also pass huge tax increases. So if there is a Democrat full sweep, perhaps you'll see a market rally kind of on the, on the initial euphoria of a multi-trillion dollar spending bill but then some pullbacks once potential corporate tax hikes start to be considered more. And of course, the other scenario is Trump winning the presidency, which polls indicate he won't, but as we know, kind of always take the polls with a pinch of salt now. And the outcome here is, is kind of harder to determine. So unlike mainstream Republican senators, Trump isn't really that concerned with the deficit. He's he not ideologically opposed to the, a huge fiscal spending plan. In many ways, he's a fan of such things. However, if Trump does win, it will likely be alongside a Republican win in the Senate, which could potentially mean no or smaller fiscal stimulus. Although on the other hand, it could also mean further tax cuts, which also markets would most likely welcome. Well, there's plenty for uh, investors to ponder there uh, with various different uh, scenarios and outcomes that um, could happen in a couple of weeks time. Given the US is the world's largest economy and, as, and also as the largest stock market, the uh, US election is an event that investors simply cannot ignore. The final news item to mention is that the planned launch of the Telworth British Recovery and Growth Trust, which we mentioned in the previous podcast, has been abandoned. In a stock exchange announcement on the 8th of October, Telworth Investments said the overall level of demand was insufficient to meet the minimum fund size it had targeted, which was 100 million. Two other UK focused trusts are planning to launch. One of the four managers of which, uh, Keith Ashworth Lord, we will shortly be speaking to, and that is the Buffetology Smaller Companies Investment Trust. The other proposed trust launch is the Schroeder British Opportunities Trust.
We move on to the fund manager interview part of the podcast. For this episode, I am joined by Keith Ashworth-Lord, manager of the CFP SDL UK Buffetology Fund. Keith, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Welcome. To start off with, let's talk about the proposed launch of the Buffetology Smaller Companies Investment Trust. At the time this podcast is first published on the 23rd of October, is the same date the fundraising period for the trust closes. And then on Monday, the 26th of October, the results of the fundraising will be announced. So Keith, I appreciate you will need to keep some cards close to your chest in regards to how the proposed trust launch has been received by investors in the fundraising period. But could you give us a flavour of how the, the new trust will invest and how it will differ from the open-ended CFP, SDL, UK, Buffetology Fund? Yes, indeed. We decided there was a need for a smaller fund uh, with, with a closed-ended vehicle uh, in order to allow us to access companies at the smaller end of the market cap scale uh, than what we were able to consider for Buffetology, the, the fund these days, because obviously you appreciate the size of the fund. So we were coming up against quite a few what we thought were opportunities, attractive investment opportunities, that quite simply were outside the scope of, of the main fund anymore. And we thought the ideal vehicle for this is a closed-ended one where we can keep the size of uh, the investment trust down to uh, allow us to access those businesses at the bottom end of, of the market cap spectrum. Don't get the idea it's going to be stuffed full of micro caps. It isn't. I mean, we're setting off with a, a target of 20 million to 500 million market cap at the time of inception. Uh, but we will we'll be pursuing exactly the same methodology as we've done with the Buffetology Fund and indeed the Free Spirit Fund. In other words, it's the business perspective investing philosophy that we'll, we'll be bringing to bear on this uh, this new vehicle. Could you um, expand on your investment philosophy, just for listeners perhaps not as uh, familiar as others? Yeah, we, we view investments in businesses as a real thing. When you buy a share, you're buying an interest in a real business. You're not messing around with a gaming chip on a casino table. And all of our efforts is, is directed at drilling down into the business, its markets, the competitive landscape. We spend all our time thinking about that and no time thinking about the direction of markets or the course of interest rates or the course of inflation or any of that sort of thing. And we're looking for businesses that have what Buffett would call an economic moat. And that means that they're consistently able to earn excess returns on their capital without those returns being competed away to the cost of capital. And the beauty is that these businesses, they throw off telltale signs that, that we've learned to look for. Uh, you know, so we're looking for businesses with very high returns on equity. We're looking for growth businesses, but preferably ones that can compound year in, year out, not uh, explosive growth. Uh, we're looking for businesses with positive margin development, businesses that generate an awful lot of cash, have strong balance sheets, and where the managers behave like owners of the business, uh, rather than expensive management consultants or worse still empire builders. So it's exactly the same economic and financial analysis that we've used for the last 20, 30 years, but on this occasion in, in a slightly different vehicle. And if you are to run two portfolios, how will you manage your time between the two? You know, whenever a fund manager takes on another fund, um, you know, it does prompt some fund analysts to suggest that um, the fund manager may potentially be overstretching himself or herself. 
Yeah, I mean, I can understand why people say that, but the reality is that the Buffettology Fund, um, its portfolio turnover is minuscule. I mean, it's 3.5% over the last 12 months. So we're not trading, you know, we're not very active investors, to be perfectly honest. Once we've got businesses in, in the portfolio, as long as those businesses, are, their operating performance is what we expected, uh, we're not going to disturb them. You know, we'll, we'll only disturb things if, if we take a, a, a view that something has changed. So what I'm saying to you is that the, the Buffettology Fund is this uh, super tanker that's sailing on majestically through the water. Uh, it's not going to tack, tack this way and tack that way. Um, it's a relatively low maintenance um, vehicle. Now it's now it's virtually fully invested. And in terms of what we're doing, the, the, the whole process with the investment trust is identical to what we're doing for, uh, you know, for the Buffettology Fund. And I would just also say we do have a quite a strong team on the small cap uh, vehicle. Uh, I'm joined on that by Eric Burns, who's the chief analyst, uh, who again has uh, 13 years small cap experience on the sell side before he joined us. And we're also being joined by David Beggs as, as the analyst on this. And David is very, very much on the Buffettology tram tracks. So I've got a really strong team around me and they'll be mainly working with me on, on the investment trust and management of Buffettology, the fund will just carry on as before. So moving on to the open-ended Buffettology fund, in terms of the COVID-19 sell-off earlier this year in the first quarter, did this lead you to make more changes to the portfolio than you would normally make? Just interested to know whether you use that period as an opportunity to go bargain hunting? Yes, uh, very much so, Kyle. First, the first thing we did was we looked up, are there, are there any businesses here that we think might not come out the other end that we're owning? Because uh, it was such a shock to the system. I've got to tell you, I mean, we've been selling down a few businesses that were micro caps that would never move the dial for Buffettology. So we'd liquidated Driver Group already. We, we'd exited Air Partner and we were exiting Revolution Bars when this, when this, uh, this, this period struck. So the two, well, three businesses that we, we decided to part company with because in two cases, we were worried they wouldn't come out the other side. Uh, they, were, they were all in the sort of retail consumer-facing ones. We completed our sale of Revolution Bars. We sold out our holding in Restaurant Group, again, as big one that was, you know, there could be an existential crisis there. And the other business that we sold uh, was actually Next um, in retail. We actually did all right out of Next. We made quite a decent profit on it. So those, those three businesses were exited. Uh, in terms of buying anything new, the answer was no. But in terms of topping up existing holdings, yes, we went off to the races. We'd entered um, March with about 14% of the fund in, in cash, and we are now down at 6%. And in, in April and May particularly, we really did go shopping. And looking back on the prices that, that we were paying for some of those businesses, I mean, I won't go through everything, but... We were paying three pounds ninety for focus right you know and the, the the nearly ten pounds now you know that's just one example there are more examples like that we had a great time shopping at the sales we are now over six months on from the heavy sell-off in the first quarter um are you finding there are less value opportunities or are you still going shopping we're still going shopping. I mean, the, the one of the things that strikes me is the negativity that's talked about about the UK and about small companies in the UK in particular. 
and uh, this this is really leading to to some valuations which are just too attractive i mean to give you give you an example uh, we were talking about launching the investment trust uh, six or nine months ago and when we were looking at what we wanted to buy for it against where we are now uh, we were anything from 15 to 25 percent higher on prices back then in in sort of January, February, than where we are today. So there's still an awful lot of opportunity around, I think, for value investments to be to be found and made. As you've just mentioned, um, there is an awful lot of negative sentiments towards UK equities at the moment. Could you explain why you are instead an optimist? The UK is a great place to do business. It really is. It's second only to the United States. You know, we've got the entrepreneurial skills here. Uh, we've got the time zone, we've got the international language of business, we've got the, the, the legal systems and the accounting standards. We really are set very fair as an entrepreneurial company, uh, a country, I'm sorry, but you would never believe that if you read the press. It's all gloom, doom and despondency. So, you know, it's, it's Brexit, it's COVID, it's World Trade Organization terms, it's the breakdown of society as the one in the press today. You know, I mean, it's just negativity wall to wall. And not surprisingly, this has conspired to drive the London market down to levels against Wall Street and the continental bourses uh, that I haven't seen for a long while. So actually at the macro level, I think there's a good opportunity. But when you go down to the smaller level, to the smaller companies level, it's like double doom and despondency. You know, you, you hear about all this talk about, oh, it's a domestic small company, domestically focused. That's an absolute load of tosh. The sort of small companies we've got, businesses like AB Dynamics, businesses like Bioventix, businesses like Focusrite, which I've already mentioned, those are global businesses. They have a product that is rare, a product or a service that is rare and wanted the world over. So they are not inwardly focused. You know, in the case of those three businesses, something like 90% of their earnings come from abroad, you know, and pretty evenly spread as well between APAC, Europe and North America. And those are the sort of small company businesses that, that you know, we want to find and, and we do find. So we think we've got a double opportunity here. You know, a plague of all your houses on the UK and a plague of all your houses on small companies. What a wonderful opportunity, a window of opportunity that will not stay open long. And finally, so your investment time horizon is at least five to 10 years. Since the fund was launched in March 2011, out of the current 31 holdings, how many have been held since day one and remain in the portfolio? Not quite day one, Kyle. It's actually first two months because we didn't invest everything on day one. But if we go back to that period, we've got 14 of the 31 companies that have been with us all the way. Three of the companies that, that we've lost along the way were actually takeovers. We've had three takeovers. We had uh, Motive, Commel, Addendum and Latchways. Uh, but as I say, the, the, the number you want is, is 14 out of the 31 have been with us since year, year one. That really does show um, the long-term investment philosophy that you have. Thank you very much for your time today. And we will keep listeners to the podcast posters on the uh, proposed launch of the Orthodology Smaller Companies Investment Trust. As usual, for the final part of the podcast, I'm joined by Theodore Diloff, Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor. Theodore, which Super 60 rated investments have you picked? My pick for today's podcast is Fundsmith Equity, which was one of the most traded funds on Interactive Investors platform in the third quarter. 
The fund is well known across the general public, but here are some key details that investors should be aware of. To begin with, uh, its highly regarded manager, Terry Smith, aims to provide capital growth by investing in a highly concentrated portfolio of between 20 to 30 stocks for the very long term. These are multinational developed world companies uh, that can sustain high rates of return on operating capital, often in areas where they have competitive advantage. In addition, the manager prefers stocks with a market cap greater than 2 billion, which reduces liquidity risk to a, a large extent. Smith follows by a hold approach, and that naturally leads to a lower portfolio turnover and a much longer holding period for an individual holding. The fund is positioned in such a way to be resilient to changes such as technological disruption. Furthermore, its quality bias adds more protection on the downside and contributes for the better uh, than the peer group average risk-adjusted profile uh, of the strategy over the long term. So could you go into more detail regarding what the fund invests in? Yeah, it's important to mention that the fund does not have a formal benchmark and therefore the manager's investable universe is huge. Currently, the fund has 29 holdings, among which are the technological leader Microsoft, healthcare giant Novo Nordisk, and the French personal care company L'Oreal. In terms of regions, although 68% of the fund is invested in the US and the rest being allocated to the UK and continental Europe, its revenue streams are global and well diversified. The top three sectors currently are consumer staples and technology, uh, with 29% waiting for each, followed by healthcare with 23% position. Smith generally avoids investing in economically sensitive and cyclical areas of the market, such as energy, materials, and financials. And for you, what makes the fund special? This is an authentic active fund, which has 90% active share against the MSCI World Index, meaning that the manager is willing to take significant bets compared to the benchmark. That was very successful approach and the higher risk materialized in higher returns than the index and the peers. Performance has been exceptional and over five years, the fund delivered 153% compared to 109% for the Morningstar Global Large Cap category. Over three years, the strategy returned 54% against 42 for the peer group average. And finally, which sort of investors do you think the fund will particularly suit? Considering the fund specifics mentioned already, such as high portfolio concentration, quality growth bias, high active share, and being benchmark unconstrained, investors need to acknowledge that the strategy will not outperform in all market conditions. That said, should cheaper, low quality, or more cyclical businesses start to outperform the wider market, the fund's performance may struggle. We rate the strategy as a core option within our global equity category due to the high quality nature of its underlying assets. And we believe that it could be ideally branded with more specialists, smaller companies or value funds in order to optimize outcome and achieve greater diversification. Thanks, Theo. Uh, that's all for this episode. We will be back in a couple of weeks. 